boldly going where no science show has gone before. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Dr Kat Arney. Hello. Hello. Kat. And also with me, Chris Smith. Now, coming up, shaken but not stirred, eponymous words for James Bond, but also scientists have discovered why jockeys adopt that characteristic posture that they do in the saddle. It's called the martini glass posture, and apparently it makes them go 7% faster. The horse and the jockey, that is, thankfully. We'll find out why shortly. Also, there's scientific evidence that cats train their human owners rather than the other way round, and we'll hear why, and also how the future of online science publishing is about to change in a very big way this week. Cat. Yeah, you should have seen Chris standing on a chair earlier in the studio demonstrating the jockey position and then falling off. It's very funny. Anyway, also under the microscope this week is the science of pregnancy and conception. We'll be talking to a man who's developing a way to work out which are the best eggs to use for IVF. Uh, we'll be hearing how stress and the emotional state of a pregnant mother can affect the development and future intelligence and behaviour of her baby. And we'll be finding out how researchers are developing a blood test to predict whether a person undergoing IVF is likely to become pregnant through the procedure. So you could say a very fertile discussion in store. Thank you, Kat. Also on the way, we've got the answer to why cereal of this variety sounds like this. Indeed, it is snap, crackle and pop. It's Rice Krispies. Why do they make that noise? We'll be finding out later on the programme. In the meantime, if you have any questions for us or you'd just like to get in touch... The email address chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.net. Now, imagine you've been told you've won a prize, but you don't know how much it is. It could be pennies or it could be millions. Now, most of us would be itching to find out about the size of our prize. And now researchers in the States have discovered that uncovering information about future rewards is actually rewarding in itself. And it uses the same pathways in the brain as our response to very basic rewards like food or drink. So food for thought, you could say then. Absolutely, and this is research by uh, Ethan Bromberg-Martin and Okihida Hikasaka, who report their results in this week's edition of the journal Neuron. And they were working with a pair of thirsty rhesus monkeys who'd been trained to choose between two different images on a computer screen using their eyes. Now, in return for picking a target, the monkeys either got a big drink or a small drink. Now, the key point here is that looking at one image brought up a symbol showing information about the size of their upcoming reward drink, while looking at the other image only brought brought up a random, unrelated symbol. So basically the monkeys could choose whether they get information about the size of the upcoming reward or not. So what do they do under those circumstances? Well, the researchers found that just after a few days of training, the monkeys pretty much always pick the image that tells them about the size of their prize, even though it doesn't actually affect the size of the drink they get. They just want to know what's coming. And the researchers also did a test where the monkeys could choose whether to look at a symbol telling them that information about their reward was on the way or just a random symbol. And again, they showed a very strong preference for the information about what was going to happen. Well, it's intriguing in itself, but how did the scientists know what brain pathways were doing that? Well, they focused on uh, what's called dopamine-releasing neurons, and these we know are involved in reward pathways in the brain, and they fire when we, we reward get rewarded with something. Um, and so the scientists re recorded the activity of 47 of these nerve cells in the monkeys' midbrains, and they found that they become very active when the monkeys were shown the symbol for an upcoming big drink, uh, but the symbol for a small upcoming drink actually switched them off, so maybe not so interested in small drinks. 
uh, just like me. Uh, interestingly, the scientists found that the same group of neurons were also activated in the tests, where the monkeys only saw a symbol just telling them that this information was on the way. So it looks like just knowing that a reward's coming uh, stimulates this reward pathway. Well, two, two thoughts. One, actually, what does this tell us? And two... Does this relate to what goes on in the human brain? Because obviously it's one thing to do it in a monkey, but what about a person? Absolutely. Oh, it depends how you respond to rewards of drinks as well. But anyway, for a start, it tells us that the same nerve pathways in the brain are responsible for processing actual re- physical rewards, like food or drink or something like that, and as well as information about upcoming rewards. Now, these dopamine neurons, they're thought to work by adjusting the connections between other nerve cells. They help to teach the brain about basic rewards like food or drink. But these new results suggest that dopamine neurons also teach the brain to seek out new information just as well as these physical needs now of course this research is just done in monkeys in non-human primates but our brains are pretty similar to those of monkeys uh, some of us more than others and it's likely that the same pathways probably are at work in our brains and perhaps these dopamine neurons are very active in our naked scientist listeners as they're thirsting for knowledge i did hear someone say that one way to beat the credit crunch is to use the old adage that planning a holiday is half the fun so stay at home this summer plan two holidays and hey presto, all the fun and none of the expense. Now also this week there's a paper in the journal Science that explains how jockeys have been able to shave up to 7% off their race times in the last 100 years and it turns out that it's all down to the way that jockeys sit in the saddle. They don't sit like that in that uncomfortable looking posture just for fun. There is some method to their madness and Dr Andrew Spence from the Royal Veterinary College is here to tell us why. Hello Andrew. Hi there. Welcome to the Naked Scientist. So what did you do? Well, so it, it started with a sort of a group discussion about this uh, paper in humans where people had found that when you put a backpack on humans that's allowed to slide up and down, um, they use less energy. And so you mean we bounce were... up and down? I think that was a nature paper a few years ago, wasn't it? When a rucksack, when a person's taking a step, the rucksack bounces up and down on an elastic band and they use less energy under those circumstances. You got it. Yeah, it's a nice paper by, by Professor Larry Rome at UPenn. And basically we thought... Maybe the crouch posture allows the jockey to do the same thing. And physically what happens is that the jockey's legs act like um, shock absorbers. And it turns out that if you're a horse, it's much easier to just keep a jockey off the ground but not have to jiggle them up and down with each step that you take. Oh, I get it. So if the jockeys sat bolt upright in the saddle like a guardsman at Buckingham Palace uh, changing the guard, then the horse with every step would have to lift the jockey up and down, whereas if the jockey stands up in that strange and bizarre posture, the martini glass posture, then the horse isn't physically lifting the jockey up because the jockey is basically countering the movement of the horse by bending his legs up and down. You got it. That's exactly right. And it's, it's hard for a, for a human to imagine what that feels like. But I think, you know, the closest we could get is probably to these Nepalese porters who carry big jugs of water on these bamboo poles that can flex up and down. You know, it's easier to carry something if you don't have to accelerate it up and down each time. How did you actually do the work? Well, so that was interesting. We, there's this whole new class of sensors coming out. Um, and basically, they're the kind of thing that's in your Nintendo uh, Wii controller. So it's the same chip that's in the little controller that allows you to play Wii Tennis. It's a little chip that can measure when it's being accelerated. And so we put those in the saddle and on the jockey, and we took measurements, and we, we compared them. And we saw that, that, yep, you know, presto, the horse moves up and down a lot, and the jockey moves up and down a lot less. Can you take that learning and make differences or changes to jockey's technique to, to train them so they'll make their horses go even faster? Well, absolutely. I mean, that's so we don't even know. I mean, this is the tip of the iceberg, really. So what would be really, really cool to do, right, is to get Frankie out there, get Frankie DeTore out there and and then put some gadgets on him and then make some measurements on novices. 
you know, some of these, in, our collaborators at the British Racing School take these really, you know, they're really interesting. They're young kids. They're 14, 15-year-old boys and girls who want to be jockeys. And we, you know, go out there and measure them. And you could compare and see how close Frankie is to perfect. And, and who knows, you know, and we could really use it as a training tool. Sounds terrific. Thank you very much, Andrew. That was Andrew Spence, who's from the Royal Veterinary College, explaining how jockeys actually move their bodies, effectively doing some of the work for the horse. That means the horse has got more energy to put into running fast. And in fact, since 1900, when they started to adopt that posture, they're going about 7% faster. Fascinating stuff. And now another animal story. Monkeys, horses and now cats. Now, this is a message from our cat overlords because it's a well-known fact that humans don't really own their cats, rather that their cats own us. And this is, in fact, why I'm a dog person, not a cat person. And now a report in this week's... Cat's a dog person. I know, me, Dr Cat, am a dog person. I I really hate cats. Uh, Anyway, now a report in this week's current biology reveals how our feline overlords do manage to persuade foolish humans to do their bidding. Now, this is research from Karen McComb at the University of Sussex who got her inspiration from her own cat who wakes her up in the morning with a very insistent purr for food that's impossible to resist. Now, as a scientist who studies vocal communication, she was really intrigued. And what she did was made recordings of cat noises and studied them. And she realised that cats were mixing together a low-pitched purr with a high-pitched cry for food. So we can listen to these recordings, judge for yourself. So if we have the low-pitched normal purring... I'm sure that wasn't you snoring out there in the middle before we started the show. It sounds like a tiger. So anyway, uh, that's a low-pitched purr. And now this is the purr that cats use when they're trying to get you to do something. So you can hear they, they're mixing in this kind of high-pitched element in there, which actually uh, people find it very urgent and they need to respond to it. Do we know why? Well, this is it. Now, even people who don't own cats, when they played the two different types of recordings, they found that people did respond to this urgent cry. And it's thought that most animals, including humans, we have this innate sensitivity to needy cries, which is why we respond to crying babies, little puppies and kittens that kind of mule and, and make noises. Now, if an adult cat just meows we tend to get a bit annoyed but they hide their annoying high-pitched meow inside a low-pitched purr. So it's like a poison chalice, isn't it? Exactly, they're very cunning. So it sends the signal that they're hungry, they need feeding but the human owner doesn't realise they're being terribly manipulated by the cats. Now, um, Karen McComb thinks that although cats do have a a small amount of this high-pitched cry in their normal purr, they learn very quickly to dramatically exaggerate it in order to get what they want. And she also thinks that not all cats use this this form of high-pitched purring, and it's probably used in households where the cat has a one-on-one uh, me- uh, relationship with the owner, and probably in, in large households where people are less likely to care about the just, cat. Just kick you it. just have to <laughs> meow. <laughs> We heard from Bernie in Peterborough who says he shared a cat with some neighbours and it very quickly got all of them very well trained to leave doors and windows open for it. Uh, Good for cats and cat burglars, I should think. Thank you, Kat. Well, the way that scientific discoveries get presented and published is also about to undergo a big change. This week, in fact, for hundreds of years, scientists have been writing up their findings and then published them in journals. These are effectively big science magazines. And when the internet came along and was developed, what many journals began to do was to publish that material that they were also putting into the print edition online. But the problem is that 
the online environment isn't necessarily the same as the printed environment. And now Emily Marcus, who's the editor-in-chief at Cell, who's one of the world's biggest science journals, is this week going to launch what they've dubbed the Article of the Future. It's effectively a whole new way of presenting information. And she's with us now. Hello, Emily. Hi, Chris. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Um, why do we need to change what we're doing at the moment? What's wrong with just putting up a facsimile edition of, of your printed papers on the web for scientists and doctors to download? Well, I guess I... I... There's not necessarily something wrong with it. I think the current format, as you said, was developed for a print uh, environment and is very effective for that in communicating information. But the bottom line is now we do have all the functionalities of an online environment that can add to what one can do in print and really enhance the um, usability of the article. I mean, it would kind of like going to a movie these days and all the previews are in color and with sound and sense around, and then you actually get to the movie and it's still a silent talkie. I mean, there's nothing wrong with silent talkies, but you can really use the, I mean, silent uh, black and white films, but you can really use the new technologies you have to improve the article and structure it for an online environment. Indeed. I mean, when I'm trying to read papers that I'm going to talk about here on The Naked Scientist, the scroll wheel on my mouse does get a lot of use going up and down in the papers. (laughs) What are you going to do to make your papers much more engaging and and user-friendly on the internet then? So the two main pain points that we're trying to address with this first release of the Article of the Future prototypes are, one, helping users more quickly identify which papers they want to read. Um, and so for that, we've added in the front um, more forms of summary of the paper. So in addition to the traditional text abstract that's there, there is now also a graphical pictorial summary of what's in the paper, and there are audiovisual interviews with the author that summarize what's in the paper. So depending on what your preferred mechanism of figuring out which papers you want to read is, you now have more options in going to the paper. So the days Um, of having to actually buy a second computer monitor so you can display them all without having to keep flicking backwards and forwards, you're saying those are over? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But but just just talk us through the interface a little bit more, because I I know you started, but so as I'm reading through the paper and I see, say, a little bit of information that I think is very interesting, I'd like to drill down a little bit more about, say, a particular reference. Can you do that? Yes. So all of the information now links to hyperlinks to the references, and likewise, you can start from a reference and go back to figure out where in the paper that reference is discussed. So if you have a particular paper and you're looking for where this new one... So the, the entire text is much more interconnected. The entire layout is much more uh, interconnected. Um, and there is also a way to navigate through it based on a, basically a picture. So you can look at a picture... At, Uh, illustration and say, okay, this is the part of the paper I'm interested in, and click on it, and it will take you directly to that part of the paper. Um, So you no longer have to sort of start at the beginning as you did in a print environment and read from the beginning through to find what you want. Now, presumably you've you've tested this out on volunteer guinea pig scientists and and, and other potential users. What do they say about it? Yes, we have had our team of guinea pigs. Um, So far we've done um, user testing, and all of the responses have been incredibly enthusiastic. They've They like the idea of trying to rethink from scratch how to present the information in a scientific article online. Um, We really took a sort of bottoms-up approach. Let's figure out this is the information you want to get across. You have all this ability online. What's the best way to structure it? Um, And not just take what worked in print and transfer it. And they really liked that approach. They liked what we've come up with. They had some very good suggestions for additional features we could add. So it will be an ongoing, evolving um, project to continue to develop an article for an online environment that um, has more functionality than in print. 
Now, obviously, this must involve additional investment on the part of your journal in order to make this much richer online experience. So how are you going to make it pay? Well, I mean, so what the, the actually the investment comes up, I think, in designing the prototypes. Uh, to date, scientists put a huge amount of effort into what they into preparing articles for publication in a print format, um, both in terms of the text itself and creation of all of the figures. So there already is a lot of effort that goes into producing a paper. I think with this new type of presentation, what types of information the authors have to provide to us will change, but the total amount um, and workload involved won't. So I think now that we've set up the expectations and guidelines for what we need as publishers to be able to present the article this way, the authors will supply us with some different types of figures, et cetera. But um, once the transition is through, the actual workload won't change. There should not be any net increase in cost to produce it in this way. So we can all look forward to a much better online environment. And we understand, Emily, it's your birthday as well today. So thank you very much for joining us on your birthday. You can go and have that glass of champagne now. Thank you very much. That was Emily Marcus, who's the editor-in-chief of Cell, where they're rolling out a whole brand new way of putting information onto the internet in a much more engaging fashion so that it should be much easier to get access to that information and then learn from it. Keeping you abreast of the world's best science, The Naked Scientists. You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Kat Arney. And don't forget, you can listen to us online, you can listen to us anywhere in the world or even out of this world in Second Life. And hello to all the Second Life people out there. Thank you, Kat. Got a couple of quick questions and feedback emails and things. We heard from Michael Madziar, who's actually listening to us in Canada, and he says uh, a few weeks ago we were talking about the noise that electric cars should be forced to make to make them safer. He says, I suggest they should be made to make the sound of a hissing snake. And he has three reasons for that. He says, one, it's not a sound that you would normally hear in an urban environment, so it should be unmistakable. Number two, many animals are genetically predisposed to avoid snakes as their predators, so this will mean they'll avoid cars, which will in turn reduce damage to both cars and animals, uh, and the noise is easily replicated with a broken whistle, so he thinks that would be a good way to go for it. Thanks for a good question, he says. Got me thinking. A smart idea. Uh, we have a quick email from Jennifer Adcock, who says, uh, thank you so much for including and answering her question about colour last week, and she was thrilled and really interested to hear what Professor Ron Douglas had to say. A very enthusiastic listener to our podcast. So thanks for writing in. And uh, Martin Clem uh, was responding to a thing we discussed recently on Ask the Naked Scientists, which was all about the maximum wingspan of an aeroplane. Uh, we said there shouldn't really be a theoretical maximum for an, an aeroplane. It will be down to the materials that are used to design it and whether you can make a frame that's big enough and, and cost-effective enough to put in the air. And he says, yes, planes could be made bigger, but there is a worldwide gate size limit, in other words, at the air terminal, of 80 metres wingspan. The A380, that's the new massive aeroplane, that's got something like four or 500 people on it, a uh, 79.8 metre wingspan for that one. Um, this is uh, this this restriction is to stop collisions apparently. Um, but he says to make a larger plane would require a longer wingspan with which would be greater than the legal limits. Apparently Howard Hughes did build a largest plane ever. It was in 1947. It was called the H4 and it was nicknamed the Spruce Goose and had a 97 metre wingspan. God, I wouldn't like to try and park that one. Um, finally, we had a, a quick email in from Andy, who says he wants to congratulate us on a fantastic show. He listens every week, and he thinks we're tra uh, carrying on the tradition of people like Carl Sagan bringing science to lay people. He says the show is fascinating, entertaining. It makes for great cocktail party fodder. So, oh, I wish I could come to some of your cocktail parties where they talk about science. Thank you, Kat. Well, coming up, we'll be finding out how you can use a blood test to help you to decide whether or not you should go for IVF, and also how maternal stress when a woman's pregnant can affect her developing embryo. But first, in this week's Kitchen Science, off to a roaring egg-related theme all about the science of pregnancy and amniotic fluid. Here's Ben and Dave. 
For Kitchen Science this week, we're going to do a pregnancy-related experiment that you can try out in the privacy of your own home. But it's nothing dirty, so don't think about those sorts of things. We're going to do something wholesome and physics-related. So, Dave, what have we got planned? Well, unborn baby is a very delicate thing. You don't want to get damaged. So I thought we'd do an experiment to see how well an unborn baby is protected in the womb. OK, now I see you have a handful of eggs with you. Now, you, you may have slightly missed the point with what we're talking about, but eggs, I guess, are related to pregnancy in some ways. These ones are unfertilised. How will we be using these to show anything about human pregnancy? Well, I thought we needed something which was quite delicate and quite easily broken, a bit like an unborn baby, so I thought an egg would be a good thing to try. This sounds to me like we're going to be breaking some eggs. That may be involved, yes. <laughs> I should have seen this coming. OK, so I think this is predictable... What are we doing with the egg? Well, first of all, I thought we need a control experiment, so we'll see what happens if you drop a normal egg from about waist height, sort of the distance a mother would fall over from. OK, so we're dropping a chicken's egg from waist height. I think everybody knows what's likely to happen. Here we go. Yep, that's exactly what I expected. We now have egg all over the floor. That was, to be honest, what I expected as well. <laughs> so this proves something that we already knew, that eggs are quite delicate. But how does this relate to pregnancy? Well, if, for example, you had an unborn baby and you fell over and there was nothing protecting it, then it's not going to do very well out of the experience. But they are well protected. They're inside a person. Well, that's why I've got my next model here. I've got a model womb, this time just basically a lemonade bottle. I've chopped it in half, put an egg inside and then glued it back together again with some tape. And I thought we'd see how well that protects the egg. So this is a, an empty lemonade bottle with just an egg in it, and again, we're dropping it from the same height. So obviously the plastic should protect it a little bit, shouldn't it? Yeah, you've essentially got a nice armoured shell around the egg, so we'll see whether it helps. OK, so we'll drop this one again from the same height. That didn't help at all, Dave. We now have a bottle full of egg. <laughs> it, it might come in handy for an omelette later. An omelette with quite a lot of shell in it, I think. So even though we had this protective case, this armoured case, it's still allowed the egg to break yeah the problem is that when the bottle stopped it stopped very rapidly it's also going to stop the egg very rapidly and by a very large force a very small area of the egg the egg can't take it and it breaks so again this isn't really a very good model for a human pregnancy is it surely we can do something else surely there's something a bit better than just an empty plastic bottle well, surrounding the baby in a real pregnancy is something called amniotic fluid. This is salty water, big sack of salty water, and the baby is sitting there floating around in this water. And, of course, this is what fills up the uterus, and this is what we see as, as the baby bump, really. It's a bag full of fluid. Yeah, that's right. So this still isn't a very good model for a human pregnancy, is it? I mean, the fetus isn't carried in an empty, hard thing like a plastic bottle. Yeah, and we may just have seen the reason why it's not carried in an empty, hard thing like a plastic bottle. What it's actually carried in is a sack full of fluid called amniotic fluid, salty fluid, which is about the same sort of density as the baby. So the baby floats in this sack full of fluid, and that helps to protect it? Hopefully, yes. So we've got a model here. We've got the egg in some salty water in a lemonade bottle with the top chopped off and then taped back up. And I've never tried this before, so we'll see if it works. So we now have essentially a model womb with some salty water so that the egg is just floating off the bottom. I assume the salt is in there to change the density of it. That's right. An egg is actually quite a lot denser than water, so we've put some salt in there to make the density more similar to the egg, so it's not quite floating, but it is nearly. So in a real pregnancy, is the amniotic fluid a similar density to a baby? I would have thought a baby would be much more dense. The amniotic fluid won't be quite the same density as a baby, but it's a lot closer to the density of a baby than air is. 
OK, well, I guess we better test your fake watery womb. And again, we're going to drop it from waist height and see if this time the egg survives. Now, this one better survive or you'll have no eggs left for your dinner, Dave. So, if you'll pardon the expression, Dave, are you ready to drop? I think I am just about, yes. OK, well, let's give this one a go, then. So this time, it actually pretty much survived. Now, I think there's one or two cracks on the bottom of the egg, but it hasn't even broken the membrane. So going back to just an ordinary egg, why does an egg break when you drop it? When you drop an egg from about waist height, by the time it hits the ground, it's going about three or four metres a second, and that's quite fast. But within, like, far less than a second after that, it stopped. So that means it's got to accelerate very, very quickly. And if something's going to accelerate very, very quickly, it needs a very, very large force. And all that force is concentrated on the place where it hit the ground, and that very large concentrated force is what smashes the egg. And when you say accelerate, you mean what most people might think of as decelerate. It's a change in the speed, albeit in this case it's going from three or four metres per second down to no metres per second really quickly. Yes, a deceleration is just an acceleration in the opposite direction. <laughs> OK, and that imparts enough force to break it. But what happens when we have the, the plastic bottle around the egg? Surely that will take up some of the force. It will spread the force out a little bit, but fundamentally the egg's still going at the same speed when it hits the ground and the force is concentrated to pretty much the same sort of area. So it's effectively the same case. OK, so the empty plastic bottle doesn't help because, really, the forces don't change very much. But then in the salty water, there must be something else going on. Yeah, that's right. When the egg's in water, it's essentially floating. That means it's got a force under it called upthrust, which is pushing up on it. It hasn't got quite enough upthrust to make it float, but it's definitely going to take away most of its weight. Now, when you accelerate the bottle really hard, when you hit it into the ground, and then this upthrust force increases as well because the water's got to stop as well. So instead of the egg being stopped by a really concentrated force where it hits the ground, it's stopped by a very spread out force from this upthrust, which gives a nice even force over the whole egg, which doesn't break it. In fact, the only reason why this has cracked is because I didn't get quite enough salt in the water, and so it did hit the bottom very gently. OK, so the, the water itself acts to spread out to disperse these forces, although the forces are still probably about the same. And because they're dispersed, the egg stays safe. Is this actually what's happening with amniotic fluid? Yes, the amniotic fluid will spread out any impacts, so you don't get any high forces on any part of the baby which would damage it. And therefore it keeps the baby safe? Hopefully, yes. Well, there you go, a very wholesome kitchen science related to pregnancy, and this one just using a bottle, an egg, and some very salty water. We'll be back with another kitchen science next week. Thanks, Ben and Dave. So basically, the water around the egg acts to disperse the forces that are acting on it, meaning that it was kept safe from the impact, and it didn't end up in a mess like the other eggs. You can actually see some video that Dave's put up on our website of that experiment in action, and it's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. We are, of course, talking about the science of pregnancy, conception eggs fertilization this week if you'd like to join in or ask us any questions the email address chris at the naked scientist.com lifting the lab coats on the world's best science the naked scientists this is the naked scientist with dr chris and dr cat and we're talking all about the science of pregnancy and conception now many people manage to get pregnant doing it nature's way when mummy and daddy love each other very much but some people need a little bit of medical help and that's when they turn to in vitro fertilization um and for some people this is the only way they're able to have their own children but at the moment it is far from perfect and there's quite a high failure rate this can leave people obviously very distraught and out of pocket and sometimes because often multiple 
medical um, embryos are put into to women, people who just want one baby can end up with uh, slightly more than that. Now, uh, in a few minutes, we'll be hearing how a blood test could tell whether or not you're suitable for IVF. But first, we're joined by Dr Dagan Wells from Oxford University. Hello. Hi there, Kat. Hello. Um, just for a start, talk us through the IVF process. What, what's it basically all about and what's going on there? Sure. Well, it's been an enormously successful technique since it was developed a little over 30 years ago now. Um, it's essentially a way that you can get around problems where maybe the egg is having difficulty making it through to the womb or sperm are having difficulty making it to the egg or fertilizing the egg. And what happens is the woman actually undergoes a course of uh, hormonal treatment which allows her to d- generate multiple eggs in a single cycle rather than the usual one that you would get in a typical monthly cycle. Uh, Those eggs are then taken out and outside the body they're fertilized with her partner's sperm. And so that gets around any possible difficulty that the sperm would have reaching the egg. And um, after that several embryos are usually produced from these eggs and then the real challenge and what we've really been working on is trying to work out which of those embryos should actually be then transferred back to the mother. The idea is ideally that you transfer one back and then get one pregnancy and hopefully one healthy baby out at the end. Um, But the problem is that actually multiple embryos are generated but they're not all equal they don't all have an equal chance of making a baby and so what we're trying to do now is to find out which we should transfer at the moment it's a bit of a lottery and just to increase the odds of success it's not unusual for an IVF center to transfer several embryos certainly in other countries in the UK it's rarely more than two so tell us a bit about some of the tests that you've been developing because I, I've actually in, in my previous life as a scientist worked on on human embryos and I am sometimes amazed that any humans get pregnant at all how can you tell what a what a good embryo embryos and what are bad ones? You're absolutely right. It's it's amazing, really, when you actually see what's going on in human embryos that uh, that we get pregnant as, as easily as some people seem to manage. Um, the primary way that's been used for many years is to just look at the embryo down the microscope. Uh, there are certain um, appearances of the embryo which may give you a clue that maybe the embryo isn't developing as well as it should. However, it's widely acknowledged that really that's only a very rough guide to embryo uh, quality, the chance of them making a baby. And so what we've been looking at is in more detail on the genetic level. Specifically, we've been looking at the chromosomes. Now, as you probably know, every cell in the body ought to have 46 chromosomes, with just a couple of exceptions. And so that's what you would expect to find. However, it turns out that in human embryos, there's this incredible level of chromosome abnormality, having the wrong number of chromosomes. And the effect of that usually is that those embryos affected with these chromosome abnormalities cannot actually produce a child. Either they just never initiate a pregnancy at all, or they uh, miscarry early in pregnancy. So tell us a little bit about um, the way that you've been testing, because at the moment they do pre-implantation genetic diagnosis on, on embryos when they're just you know a few cells. Tell us about the technique that you've been developing. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. There is an existing technique where a single cell is removed from the embryo three days after fertilization, at which point it usually is only consisting of about six to eight cells. So at that point you can take one cell and you can test it and you can look 
look at about half the chromosomes that are in there. And people have used that for a number of years. Some people have said that it's helped uh, considerably with pregnancies, uh, but other people have said it doesn't work at all and may actually reduce the chance of the embryo making a baby. Now, the difference with what we're doing now is we're waiting an extra two days might not seem like much, but in those two days, the embryo goes from just a handful of cells up to over 100 cells. And that means that at that point, we can actually take several cells. Now, the effect of that is that we get a much more reliable test. And uh, that doesn't presumably do too much damage to the embryo. So if you've got one that the, the test says that it's all right, you're not going to be hideously harming it. Exactly. A again, if you do the uh, traditional test uh, looking on day three after fertilisation, there is accumulating evidence that that may have some impact on the embryo's ability to form a pregnancy. It's not that it's going to give rise to a child with you know, a body part missing or something like that. It's a more all or nothing thing. It may just simply not make a pregnancy. Now, if you look uh, at the stage that we look at, known as the blastocyst stage, two days later, that's a very robust stage, and the embryo tolerates the biopsy beautifully, almost as though nothing had happened to it. The other thing we're doing is, rather than just looking at half the chromosomes, we're looking at the full set. So we're really getting a very comprehensive idea of what's going on. And how are you actually looking at the chromosomes? What's the technique that you're using? Well, we're using a method that was originally developed for looking at chromosome abnormalities in tumours, which are, of course, very common. Um, they have a similar problem to what we have in that it's very hard to actually get a cell to show you its chromosomes um, from some cancers and certainly from the cells from the embryos. So what we do is we actually take the DNA that makes up the chromosomes out of the cells and we actually colour it in. We label it with a fluorescent colour. Um, in, in usually we label the embryo cell uh, DNA green. We then take some DNA from someone who we know has a normal set of chromosomes, they're exactly the right number, and label their DNA with a red colour. We then mix those green and red DNAs together and we apply them to some chromosomes that are stuck on a microscope slide. Now what happens is the red and green DNAs kind of fight it out to stick down to these chromosomes. If they fight it out equally, all of the chromosomes get equally covered with red and green DNA and you get a kind of yellow colour from the mixing of those two colours. But if our embryo, for example, had one chromosome too many it's going to have relatively more green DNA than it should, just because it's got one chromosome more than it should. And so one of the chromosomes on the microscope, uh, down on the microscope slide, will end up looking more green than it ought to. And that's what gives away that there's been an abnormality. Fantastic. And so, just very briefly, um, is, are you actually using this to get successful pregnancies? What, what's the success rate like when you do this test? Yeah, it's a great question. That's the real acid test at the end of the day. Well, so far we've done a prospective trial um, of this, uh, and this is in association with my colleague Elpida Friguli and a centre in America called the Colorado Centre for Reproductive Medicine. Now, this isn't a randomised trial, so it's not really the gold standard study, but what it is is a prospective trial, which I think is indicative. We've done about, well, over 100 cycles now, and the pregnancy rate is actually about 90%, which is way higher than you would ever normally expect in IVF. Now, that has to now go ahead and be verified in a well-controlled uh, study, which is what we're going to be initiating actually in London in September of this year. Absolutely fantastic. I'm afraid we have to stop there. I could listen to that all day. And that's Dr Dagan Wells. He's from Oxford University. And he will be with us for the rest of the show. So if you have any questions for Dagan or for us, our email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. 
Thank you, Kat. Well, Troy McLuhan has pointed out that he thinks this week's kitchen science experiment was absolutely smashing. Boom. But meanwhile, we've now heard how you can test embryos for vital clues as to which ones are probably the healthiest and therefore likely to result in a successful pregnancy. But what about testing mothers directly so that you can predict who's got the best IVF prospects? Well, Dr Cathy Allen is at the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin where she's been working on just that sort of idea. Hello, Cathy. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Can you first of all tell us, what are you doing about this test? What, what have you actually discovered? Um, well, first and foremost, I just have to clarify, we're far away from having um, a blood test that's readily available. But what we have been doing is looking at... Um, possible markers in the blood, in the circulating or peripheral blood, that might give us some insight into what is happening um, during the periconceptual time and early pregnancy. Um, So basically what I was doing was looking at the messengers that genes send out when they are undergoing a particular function, messenger RNA, and we looked at this, um, again, as I say, in the peripheral blood, but we looked particularly for Um, signals that would be coming not only from the mum, the maternal genome, but also from the developing embryo and early trophoblast or placental tissue. And we basically took um, blood tests from women undergoing IVF at several different time points before, during and after their treatment. And we um, compared the gene expression profiles that um, were, were, were seen with these people. So you're basically comparing, so Cathy, you're you're basically comparing healthy outcomes, in other words, IVF that's successful, and looking at whatever spectrum of markers get turned on with less good outcomes in order to work out whether there's a a combination of markers that predict a good outcome. Yes. Well, one of the um, areas that we learned, one of the time points that we took was just before the potent um, drugs of IVF are given. So usually in an IVF cycle, the first thing to do is to control the innate or natural hormonal cycle of the woman undergoing the treatment because you don't want her own hormonal cycle to ovulate all of the stimulated eggs that are still in the ovary at a time point when you're not ready. Everything has to be very, very controlled. So basically the pituitary gland in the brain is suppressed. And this is usually, in a lot of centers, it's about two weeks of a nasal spray before the the IVF proper begins. And at that time point, we were able to see in the blood, uh, in the characteristic gene profiles of the women who went on to become pregnant and those who were unsuccessful, we were able to see a very characteristic difference um, at that point. So this is um, something that we find very interesting, very exciting. Of course, but if you can see differences, then that gives you immediately something to study because you can ask, well, what is that difference? And can we rectify that difference to give those people who are having a bad outcome better prospects of a successful IVF treatment in future? Well, you know, the, trying to manipulate um, gene and uh, gene pathways is, is further down the line. But first is to understand, I mean, this is all very new. So we were able to kind of look at, well, what are the genes and what processes in the body are they involved in? And the, um, the key areas that we, we found that the, the most prominent genes that were acting differently were, they were making, you know, biologically plausible sense. They were, they were key areas like new blood vessel formation and inflammation and oxidative stress. And interestingly, our group does a lot of work on cancer and stem cells. And um, it was the same sort of profiles that you get from the early stem cells. So um, obviously there's a lot of more work to be done on this, but certainly they, uh, the, the two patient populations, those who went on to become pregnant and those who didn't, were um, very, very different indeed. So it would be interesting to see if this could be developed into um, a sort of a, a profile or a signature 
of, of success or failure that could help people when they are on the IVF trail and um, trying to see if their, their chances are good. Because at the moment, the, um, the, the prognostic tools that we have to guide patients making these difficult decisions are very blunt. It's basically female age and past reproductive history and anything else. And obviously, Dagan's work is very exciting. But at the moment, we still, we still use very um, broad uh, statistics to guide our patients. What about upstream of IVF, though? Because obviously people have to try for a while to find out that there is a problem before they then go down that route. Some people could be spared a lot of time because obviously people have to try for a while to prove that they're not going to get pregnant the normal way before they go and have IVF. We could spare them that time if we could preempt who was going to fall into that I need IVF category. Could something like the system that you're using be used to predict who those people are? Um, well, I don't see that in the in the in the in the earlier in the in the near future i would hope that um this information may be useful really for um people who have done ivf maybe once or twice and have you know for no good reason or no explicable reason um had had no success and i i think these are the people that i would see where it is extremely difficult for them to decide whether to you know, throw the dice again, have another go of IVF or to call it a day. So I think really it. my first, I think clinically this sort of testing would probably be useful for those uh, individuals who've had, you know, disappointment after disappointment. I've got an email here from Matthew who says, I have a question that um, is related to this. Is it true that a woman's degree of fertility or the amount of oestrogen she produces depends on her genes? I'd be grateful if you could consider this. Well, um Sort of indirectly, yes, um, you do need to have the proper genes um, acting in a synchronized fashion for the proper hormonal um, cycle to occur. But um, there's a lot more to it. For example, there are women who would have, um, you know, very high estrogen levels, but still reduced fertility because the pattern the, of the hormones and um, peaking and troughing during the month would be incorrect. So, um Yes, if you've got a very low estrogen levels, your your your, your fertility will—it's uh, a reflection, really, of what's going on with the ovaries and how they're functioning. Yeah. So, is your work suggesting then that some people are effectively genetically predestined not to get pregnant? Well, I don't think it's in the genome that we inherit. I think it's in the way that um, the genes themselves then activate or are expressed. I mean, basically, we all inherit our genes; we're stuck with them, whatever they are. But they don't just stay static, you know, during our lives. The genes are um, activated, upregulated and downregulating according to the different physiological process that's undergoing. For example, if you're recovering from an illness, certain genes will be turned on, certain genes will be turned off. And really, you know, if the expression is um, differentially controlled in the appropriate way, and who knows what affects that? Maybe it's... Um, Maybe it's our, our lifestyle, maybe it's the environment, maybe it's just um, our physiology. But I think, um, as I say, it's not just predestined forever, you know, from the time you're born, no. Which is encouraging news. Thank you, Cathy. We have to leave it there. That was Dr Cathy Allen. She's based at the Rotunda Hospital in Dublin, where she's been working on what blood tests can tell us about the possible prospects of a course of IVF. This is The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. We're talking this week about the science of pregnancy and fertility. In a second, we'll find out why it is that stress can affect the outcome for a pregnant woman. Laying the facts bare. I say. The Naked Scientists. 
You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. Now, pregnant women are advised to eat well, to lay off the booze, not to smoke and to take it easy and put their feet up. But little is said about avoiding stress. Now, it seems that stress during pregnancy might affect the way that the fetus will develop, as Mira Senthalingham found out when she met Imperial College London's Professor Vivette Glover at the Royal Society's Summer Exhibition. Well, we're interested in how the emotional state of the mother during pregnancy affects the development of the fetus and the future child. And what we're finding is that quite a wide range of different sorts of stresses, the mother's more anxious, she has quarrels with her partner, can affect fetal development. So how have you gone about looking into this? Well, we recruit pregnant women and we ask them all sorts of questions about themselves. Quite often we ask them to fill in questionnaires or we interview them. So we find out different aspects of their emotional state. So what effect does their emotional state have on their fetus? Well, we then follow up the child. What we find is that there are quite a wide range of different effects it can have on the child. It can increase the risk of symptoms of attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, of ADHD. It can increase the child's level of anxiety. It can have an effect on their learning ability, so they have a lower IQ. And it can make them have a high level of conduct disorder, of generally being hard to control. Different children are affected in different ways. We think there's probably an interaction with their genetic vulnerability. So say if they're genetically vulnerable to anxiety, that increases the risk of them becoming anxious children. And so what is the actual connection between this? So what happens as a result of the mother being stressed to then have this effect on the baby? We're looking into that at the moment. The evidence that there are such effects is very good. The evidence about the mechanisms is only just starting. But one of the things we think is probably involved is the stress hormone cortisol. And we have some evidence that if the mother is stressed, this affects the function of her placenta, which usually filters what passes from the mother to child, usually a very effective barrier to cortisol, that if she's anxious, more cortisol passes to the child. So we think that's part of the mechanism, that the placenta's function is affected and the fetus is exposed to more cortisol, and that changes the development of the fetal brain. It's thought that the increase in the amount of cortisol reaching the baby could perhaps be to do with an enzyme that isn't functioning quite correctly. Is that right? That's right. What we think is happening is that the placenta usually has a very high level of the enzyme that breaks down cortisol. And it's been shown in animals, and we're just studying now because we think it's probably happening in humans, that this enzyme gets what's called downregulated, becomes less effective. So the barrier to cortisol becomes weaker, more cortisol goes through the placenta. But we're studying on that right now. Well, now, as part of your stand here at the Royal Society, you've actually got some human placentas on show. So, And I must admit, it's very intriguing to look at. So could you take me through this placenta? <laughs> well, this was delivered about a week ago, and we've got it encased safely in a vacuum-packed bag, a bit like you might get meat in the supermarket. So you can see the actual structure of the placenta. You can see the cord. You can see the fetal side and the maternal side. There's quite a difference in colour between the fetal and the maternal side. side yes. The placenta is actually made from the fetus, and you might not know the placenta has a sex, so if the fetus is male, the placenta is male, and actually male and female placentas behave in different ways. How do they behave differently? What do they do? Well, we're just starting to look at that, but they, for example, if the mother has asthma, the response of the placenta is quite different, whether it's a male or female placenta. And so this difference in the male and female placenta, could that change if the mother is then stressed? So could that then have a different effect on the child? That's one of the things we're looking into right now. It's been shown in animals that there are quite big differences in how baby girls and baby boys are affected by 
prenatal stress. And so we're looking to see if that's happening in humans as well. And just lastly, I guess, so what is it about this increase in cortisol of entering the child that has an effect on the child? What does it do to a baby? Well, it does a lot of things. It causes it to grow more slowly, so it can help to contribute to the baby being born small for a gestational age. But it also affects how the brain develops. It depends at the time of exposure, but different bits of the brain, the part of the brain that controls fear or controls memory, can be developed in different ways. It's exposed to high levels of cortisol. And so once this is fully understood, is this then going to just increase advice for mothers to basically try and stay stress-free? Well, I think that that should be part of what's more generally known in society. Mothers, there's a limit to how much they can do for themselves. I think they should be advised to try and look after themselves, take time off, relax. But I think it's also very important there should be more help given to pregnant mothers. I think the physical care in our country of pregnant women is very good. The emotional care of pregnant women has hardly started. And I think if we could provide more emotional support, the appropriate kind, depending on what the problem is, we could help the outcome and health, not just of the mother, but of her child as well. And that was Professor Vivek Glover from Imperial College explaining to Mira Senthilingam how stress can cause changes in the placenta and ultimately influence how the fetus develops. Bringing the facts to bear. The Naked Scientists. It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith and with Katani. We're talking about the science of fertility, conception, pregnancy this week. I've got a question here, Kat, from B. Frantel, who says, are female humans the only mammals that suffer from postnatal depression? Well, this is an interesting one. I've been doing a bit of digging around and actually there is some evidence that some animals can have um, postnatal depression. The main animals that have been looked at are rats and mice because they've mainly been used as laboratory models for humans. And they do find that rats can show depressive symptoms, things like poor nursing, signs of stress and anxiety after birth. Um, And they're also quite useful. You can manipulate the hormone levels in rats to to bring on uh, a postnatal depression type symptoms. Um, and there's uh, some labs that are doing this and then trying to test interventions, ways to help reduce this, because it's definitely thought that changing hormone levels, increases in cortisol, uh, drops in female sex hormones, help to bring on uh, this kind of problem. There's some interesting mouse models as well, um, particularly mice who have faults in their GABA receptors in their brain, on their brain cells and their nerve cells, um, are much more likely to show these kind of depressive symptoms after birth. And uh, a a terrible experiment that's been done in rats, they find that if they take their puppies away uh, for short lengths of time. I mean, not like, you know, days, but if they take their pups away, um, it does induce depression-like symptoms. Um, I can't find any evidence about uh, larger animals, but there's certainly some anecdotes out there about dogs, uh, kind of dogs and cats, some of them showing postnatal depression-type symptoms like not nursing properly and, and not really being themselves. It's interesting because the same mechanisms that lead to mother-baby bonding in humans also work in animals, don't they? So there are big changes in hormones which we know affect the mood of animals and the way in which they engage or link, associate, bond with their offspring. So it's not so unlikely that the same hormones that trigger mood changes in us to cause postnatal depression could also occur in in other mammalian species. Yeah, I would I would certainly expect it to be the case and certainly definitely in the lab rats and mice um can show postnatal depression. We had a question um from 
Jake won Silver Cloud. I don't know if you've got a feeling on this cat because I know you said you hate cats, but he's saying, <laughs> how old is a cat when it first gets to make an adult-sounding meow? I'm not sure I know the answer to no, that. No, I don't think so. I don't know. When when do cats go through puberty? Is there cat puberty? Uh, if any listeners have any cats and would like to tell us when their cat started sounding like a grown-up cat, is it, um, is it, cat, is it puberty? Well, I, don't, I don't know. You know when, when does a cat become mature enough to make an adult sound? Uh, maybe when it's fully grown. I don't know. Interesting one. Um, we got a question here from Ewitt in Northampton who says, why does the body need salt and what happens if you have low salt levels, Chris? Well, the reason the body needs salt is because every single one of our cells contains large amounts of salt and there are, salt is a generic term for ions, charged particles. And most of the cells in our body, in fact all the cells in our body, are electrical. In other words, they pump these ions from one side of their cell membrane, which is a, a, a lipid or oily substance, and therefore an insulator. So they pump ions from one side of that membrane to the other. And this means there is an electrical potential difference across the membrane of a cell. And this means that this gradient, this electrical difference, can be used by the cell to do other sorts of work. So cells, for instance, have channels that sodium can flow into a cell and it comes down its potential difference in concentration gradient and the result is that it can be used to say pull in glucose at the same time so sugars can get into cells so we need salts in our cells it's how they regulate their size by bringing water in by osmosis it's how they regulate their electrical activity nerve cells for instance couldn't carry information without actually having this electrical gradient across the membrane because all that's happening when a nerve cell fires off an impulse is that you get a, a sudden flood of sodium into one patch of a nerve cell. This brings in lots of plus into that bit of the cell and therefore an electrical signal goes whizzing down the nerve and gets built up and regenerated as it goes down the nerve and it travels at about 50 to 100 metres a second. So very rapid transmission of, of information. So we need salts in the body. We take in salt in our diet and we absorb salts, and those salts also include important things like calcium to make your bones strong, but you're also losing salts all the time. When you go to the toilet, for example, you lose calcium, you lose phosphates, and this is both in urine and in faeces, so you have to continuously top up the number of salts that you have in the body because you have obligate or insensible losses. But we hear so much about like, salt being really bad for you in your diet, giving you high blood pressure, so if you have a diet that's too low in salt, is that also uh, pretty bad for you? Well, the body's very good at scavenging salt from what you eat and what you drink so it's very rare for people to get too lower levels of salt in the body based on diet alone usually there's something pathological going on sometimes what happens is that people have a problem called syndrome of inappropriate adh this is antidiuretic hormone and the body saves too much water so it scavenges back water and as a result your blood can become too dilute and you have very low sodium levels and this can cause problems with your brain swelling it can also cause the accumulation of, of water elsewhere in the body and it, and it can cause heart failure so a bad thing to have but that can cause low salt levels and can make people feel dizzy um, we've had a question in here from Gunjan Dixit and he wants to know how does black skin give better survival in hot countries uh, surely white skin reflects the heat black skin might absorb it well basically it all boils down to a pigment called melanin this is the dark pigment uh, if you're fair skinned you can see it in your moles and if you're dark skinned uh, you have a lot of melanin all over your skin and melanin is almost like the body's natural sunscreen it helps to uh, protect you against the damage that ultraviolet light can do and this means that people from uh, countries who have dark skin they're actually much less likely to get skin cancer 
cancer. Us people with very fair, pale skin, when we're exposed to a lot of sun, a lot of ultraviolet radiation, our chances of getting skin cancer are actually much higher because the sun, the UV light from the sun can really penetrate into the skin. Whereas if you have dark skin, the melanin helps to protect you. Um, there's also an interesting argument, some recent evidence from Nina Jablonski, and uh, we heard her talking on the show recently about this, that uh, very deep ultraviolet radiation can actually break down folic acid, folate, in your body. So obviously you need to protect yourself against this happening because folate's really important for healthy metabolism and also for making healthy babies. So it's probably a, a natural defence mechanism that's evolved in people from countries where it's very hot to tend to have dark skin, lots of melanin to protect you. Thank you, Kat. Uh, now, from uh, dark skin to another issue, which is snap, crackle and pop. Why does that particular cereal make those wonderful noises? Well, to tell us, Diana O'Carroll is here with this week's Question of the Week. This week, why is breakfast always such a noisy affair? Asks David. Hi, Naked Scientist. Could you please tell me what's happening when you hear the snap, crackle and pop with Rice Krispies? Thank you. So what is going on in the breakfast bowl? Hi, my name's Paul Wheeler and I work for Kellogg's. It's actually a really simple process. It's got a lot to do with compression. What we do is we take little grains of rice, we soak them in water, add our secret ingredient to it, and then we cook the rice at a really high temperature. What happens then is the rice puffs up and little air pockets form inside the grains of rice. Now, also when you cook this sort of thing like rice at such high temperatures, the starch molecules kind of begin to bond together. And what that does is if you would take a rice crispy out of the packet and look at it under a microscope, you would see the actual surface of the rice becomes more brittle and actually more transparent. So what happens is when you pour the cold liquid onto the rice crispy, the small bubbles of air that we've got, they collapse in on themselves and the rice that is crisped up through the cooking process collapses as well. And that's where you get the sound effect from that your listeners will hear when they pour the milk on the cereal. It's a really, really simple process. And actually, if people look at the surface of the milk when that's happening, they can actually see the air bubbles actually rise up and appear. Heating the rice creates super brittle bubbles. It's just the simple pressure of milk that causes them to shatter and let the gas inside escape. They say a good cereal is good for your heart, but what about pacemakers? Hello, my name is Savio Mal Oliver from India. My question is, how does an artificial pacemaker know how fast the heart should beat? How does a pacemaker know to keep in step with your exercise? Help us answer this next question of the week by writing the answer on our forum. You can do that at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Just sign in and write your thoughts. Or you can email us, and that's chris at thenakedscientists.com. Diana O'Carroll with this week's question of the week. She'll be back next time, but in the meantime, it's also available as a podcast in its own right. You can get it off the web at nakedscientist.com forward slash QOTW. Now, we've had a question in from Maggie Ray uh, talking about the jockey story earlier. She wants to know, does a good jockey actually make a horse go faster despite the extra weight and aerodynamic drag? 
just looking at uh, Andrew Spence's paper in Science, he was the guy who was talking to us earlier, and they actually point out the jockey contributes about 13% of the weight of a horse and rider, and when you load a horse up, it does run slower. They've got evidence to show that. So the jockey does slow the horse down, but a good jockey, by adopting this posture and also pumping the knees up and down, they're saying could effectively contribute energetically to the running of the horse. So yes, they could potentially make a contribution, and that's where a good rider has their skill. Well, that's it for this week. We have run out of time, unfortunately. I have to say thank you to Andrew Spence, to Emily Marcus, Dagan Wells, Cathy Allen and Vivek Glover, our guests this week and our production team, Tom Simpkins, Mira Senthaligan, Ben Valsler, Diana O'Carroll, Laura Sol and Dave Ansel. We're back next week with a rubbish show. Quite literally, we're talking about what we do with garbage. So turning trash into treasure, how we can recycle rubbish and turn it into useful energy. The Naked Scientist podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com.